Well, today we are going to continue in our series called Life After Life, and uh, we've been answering the questions about uh, the hereafter, and today we are going to consider the question, why the cross? Why the cross? Uh, I'm going to ask you, if you would, to get your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the book of Acts chapter 10. Acts chapter 10. You'll find in your uh, bulletin some things that will help you today. One of those is an outline. And also you'll find a little orange card there. I want to ask you to just keep that handy. I'll be asking you to reference that in just uh, a little bit. So uh, Acts chapter 10. Now, now Luke tells us that the apostle Peter uh, went into the home of a, of a Gentile. Uh, a, a Roman soldier, a centurion, and he there he presented the message of the cross and the resurrection of Christ to him. And we are going to pick up with the story there in uh, Acts chapter 10, beginning in verse 34. And it says, In opening his mouth, Peter said, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. The word which he sent to the sons of Israel, preaching peace through Jesus Christ, he is Lord of all. You yourselves know the thing which took place throughout all Judea, starting from Galilee after the baptism which John proclaimed. And you know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power And how he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. And we are witnesses of all the things he both did in the land of uh, the Jews and in Jerusalem. They also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Not to all people, but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God. That is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this opportunity today to consider again uh, the wonder of the cross. And we pray that you would give us a, a new and greater understanding of what the cross really means to us. And I pray for those who have never surrendered their life to you, that today you would draw their hearts to yourself. And Lord, we pray for us as believers that you would give us a a new love and appreciation for you and what you have done through the cross. And so Lord, we pray these things now in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. On the uh, screen today is a drawing of a cross of Christ that uh, I did in a worship service here about, it's been about 20 years ago. It now hangs in my study 
And I, I look at it often, not because I did it, but because it makes me contemplate what God really did on that day in that place in, in Jerusalem. And you know, um, I, ever since I was a, a young boy growing up down in Virginia, I've had a fascination with the cross, and I never did really understand it. I, we would sing that song, you know, the old rugged cross in the, in the service, and, and, and there were just so many times that I would just wonder, you know, why the cross? I didn't really understand that. And, but, and think about it, as you look at this, I mean, as you look at this picture, is this, is this a picture of God's love or of God's wrath? Is this, a, is this a picture of God's mercy or of God's judgment? Is this a picture of God hanging on a tree that he created? Or is this a, a picture of a man hanging on a tree that he carried there? Is this a picture of faith or of doubt? Is this a picture of something that is to be cherished or despised? Is it something that is, is, is a picture of mourning or of, or of uh, uh, rejoicing? When I look at the cross, you know, look at the cross, I look to the left of it, I see people mourning. When I look to the right of it, I see people rejoicing in the death of Christ. Is it bright glory above or is it dark powers below? Is it a picture of victory or of defeat? Is it, is it a picture of life or of death? You know, as an artist, how do you draw something so ugly beautifully? I mean, how do you paint something so dark gloriously? Uh, how do you depict something so shameful with modesty? You see, it's a real challenge. The cross is an incredible paradox, a a seeming contradiction. And it's not either or, it's all of those things at once. It's a paradox. And you know, it wasn't until I personally came to the cross that I could say with the, the songwriter of the old rugged cross that, that though it's an emblem of suffering and shame, I love that old cross where the dearest and the best for a world of lost sinners was slain. It wasn't until then that I could say, though it's despised for, by the world, it has a wondrous attraction for me. It wasn't until then that I could say, though it's stained with blood so divine, a wonderful beauty I see. Hear the paradox in that? See, when you come to the cross and you kneel before Jesus and you ask him to, to save you and to change you, your perspective changes. Why the cross? It changes everything about your life and your eternity. 
And as we look at the passage today, I want you to see why the cross is essential to having life after life. When we come to the cross, you see, we find God's open arms. God's open arms. In verse 34, it says, opening his mouth, Peter said. Now that phrase tells us that what Peter's about to say is very significant and important. And Peter is going to share with Cornelius the the message of the cross and what God has recently taught Peter. And he continues in verse 34, he says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. You see, Peter finds himself standing in the home of a a Gentile, a Roman soldier, a centurion no less, and finds himself declaring that God does not show partiality. Uh, Partiality translates a Greek word that means to lift up the face. I mean, you can almost see a master walking over to a slave with his head down, putting his hand under his chin and, and lifting up his face. See, that it means to show favor or to show favoritism. And you see, that was what, what he's saying is that God doesn't have favorites. Now, that was new to Peter because he grew up his entire life thinking that God had favorites. He thought that his people, the Jews, were God's favorite over all everybody else in the world. But just a few days earlier, see, Peter was praying on, on, on a housetop in Joppa, not far from where Cornelius was, when he became hungry. And, and he, was, he was waiting for them to prepare lunch, and, and he fell into a trance, and he had a vision. And in that vision, he saw a sheet coming down from heaven, suspended by four corners. And in that sheet were all kinds of four-legged creatures of the earth and birds of the air and creatures of the sea. I mean, there were pigs and there were, and there were shrimp and there were insects and all the things that... God's people were forbidden to eat in, under the Old Testament dietary law. Things that they called unclean. And so a voice comes to Peter and he says, get up, Peter, kill and eat. And Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy or unclean. And this voice comes a, a second time and says, What God has cleansed, no longer consider unholy. And just to make sure that he gets the point, this happens three times, and then the sheet is taken back up into the sky. And you see Peter sitting there trying to figure out what this means. And while he's pondering this and thinking about it, the Spirit of God says to him, Peter, there are three men at your door. And I want you to go with them, and and without hesitation, because I myself have sent them. And Peter goes with these men. They go about 30 miles north up the coast to a place called Caesarea. 
Caesarea was a, a city that was built on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea by Herod the Great. It was his summer home. See, even Herod wanted to go to the beach in the summer. And here's this place, and, and Peter enters into this house where Cornelius is, this Gentile. Now, when he goes in there, he meets this man named Cornelius. And the Bible tells us uh, some things about him. He says he was a devout man and one who feared God with all his household and gave many alms to the Jewish people, and he prayed to God continually. So that meant that he attended synagogue. It meant that he followed the Old Testament scriptures, and he worshipped the one true God. But Cornelius was not a Jew. He was a Gentile. And so when Peter entered into his house, it was probably the first time in his entire life that he had ever walked into a Gentile's home. And it was probably the first time that a a Jew had ever walked into Cornelius' house as well. And Peter takes note of this incredible, momentous occasion. And he says in verse 28, he said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a man who is a Jew to associate with a foreigner or to visit him. And yet God has shown me that I should not call any man unclean or unholy. And that's why I came, he says, without even raising any objections when I was sent for. So I ask, what is the reason that I, you, I've been sent for? And see, then uh, Cornelius begins to relate to him the fact that he has had a, uh, a visitation from an angel. And the angel said, send for him because Peter's got a message for you. And Peter so then understands that God has sent for him to call Cornelius and these Gentiles to the cross. And Peter opens his mouth, it says, and he begins to declare to them the message of the cross. The last part of verse 34, Peter says, I I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality. But in every nation, the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome to him. See, through the, through the cross of Jesus Christ, God has thrown open the welcome mat to every nation, tongue, tribe. Everyone. Every man, woman, child, rich, poor, red, yellow, black and white, they're all precious in his sight. God says, you're all welcome, anyone who comes to me by faith. See, God is no respecter of persons. When it comes to to sin and salvation, see, there's no difference. Because all people have the same creator, and all people need the same Savior. No difference. And and understand that when Paul says that... um, that people who do right are welcome to him. He's not saying that we're saved by our works because he would be contradicting what he says in verse 43, that salvation is by faith. What he's simply saying is that when you see, when you come to the cross, your life gets changed. You live differently. You believe that's the faith, and then as a result, it results in a righteous life. 
The cross shows us God's open arms. We serve a God without partiality. But, you know, we live in a world where partiality is everywhere, don't we? There was a court case in the 1840s based in Chicago, uh, and it, it captured the attention of, of the nation. It was, uh, it was labeled the, the Reaper case because it, it centered around the patenting of farm equipment invented by Cyrus McCormick. You may remember that name. And, and the case had such high stakes that they decided to, um, to uh, bring in a, a team of legal rock stars from the East Coast to the, to the Midwest to take on this, this case. And uh, since the, the judge himself was from Illinois, this team of lawyers thought that they should probably have somebody local to represent them on that team as well. And so they worked through their network and they, they found a, an obscure small town lawyer that they thought might work for their team. Well, when this elite group of lawyers arrived and they met this, this small town lawyer, they were, they were, um, they were shocked. They were stunned. I mean, he was poorly dressed. He, he, he Spoke with a strong, small-town accent. Uh, he used some, some folksy vernacular. In short, he was just a country bumpkin. And the team's leading lawyer, a man by the name of Edwin Stanton, said in the presence of this small-town lawyer, he said, let's do away with this ape. And then they proceeded to do what any group of immature men will do. Uh, they decided to ditch him. They would have their meetings without him. They would have lunch without him. They would tell him different times for the, for the court uh, date so that he would show up after everything had happened. And they just considered him very insignificant. And, and Stanton ended up, he, he went on, he won the case, and, and, he, and he went on to become one of the leading figures in American politics. In fact, he was uh, chosen to be the Secretary of War during the Civil War. But to his surprise, he went to work for the very man that he had once called Ape. A play on his name. And on his appearance, Ape Lincoln, they called him. But his name is, as you will know, is that of Abraham Lincoln. See, they didn't recognize his significance. It wasn't seen until later on. And see, that's the way it is in our lives. We often don't recognize the significance of people. But God does, and God considers every person incredibly significant and worthy. And that's why he sent his son to die on the cross. See, Jesus Christ is the radiance of God's glory. 
He is the, the, the fragrance of God's holiness. He is the one who knows all things, who created all things, who possesses all things. And, and as the choir sang this morning, he, he left that, that glorious golden throne in heaven to come down to this sin-infested world. And he said, I have come to seek and to save people who are not like me. I have come to seek and to save those who are lost. He came to seek and save the sinners. He came to seek and save you and me. He has no partiality. He's not a respecter of persons. And at the cross, we find God's open arms. At the cross, we find God's perfect sacrifice. Now, Peter begins in verses 36 and 37 by talking about the life and ministry of Jesus, beginning with his introduction by John the Baptist. And he says in verse 38, he says, You know of Jesus of Nazareth, how God anointed him with the Holy Spirit and with power. And Peter tells us that Jesus was anointed. The title Messiah in Hebrew and the title Christ in Greek, both mean God's anointed. He was anointed. Jesus was anointed not with oil as the kings of Israel were, but he was anointed with the power of the Holy Spirit. And he used that power to do good for humanity. And it says that, that uh, in verse 38, now he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Now, the word oppressed means to be tyrannized. You see, and Jesus came into a world that was enslaved and was abused by the devil. And he went about doing good for people. He went about releasing people from the power and the dominion of the devil. And here's what Peter says in verse 39. He says, we are witnesses of all these things. The things that he both did in the land of the Jews and in Jerusalem. Now, Peter's talking about himself and the other apostles when he says, we are witnesses. See, a witness is someone who has firsthand information and shares what they know to be true. And Peter and these other apostles are sharing our witnesses of what they know about Jesus Christ. Peter had the opportunity you know, to, to see Jesus close up. And the more closely Peter looked at, at, at the Jesus, the more perfect he was. Now, that's what I have found to do as well. The more, I look, more closely I look at, the, at Jesus, the more perfect he becomes in my life. But you know what? It's just the opposite with most, most things in life, isn't it? A young woman came home to her mother after a date with a guy of her dreams. And she's, her eyes are sparkling and, and she's floating on clouds and she's got a, a, a glittering uh, engagement ring on her finger. And she says, Mom, can you believe it? He proposed. And her mother said, Honey, Are you sure he's the one? So he's flawless. She said, well, what about the the diamond he gave you? Are you satisfied with it? I said, oh, it's flawless too. 
And her mother said, well, you may be half right. Okay, that's the best I can do that. There's a drum roll, pa-ching. <laughs> you know, a flawless diamond is the best diamond you can buy. A flawless diamond is one that shows no flaws up to 10 times magnification. But after 10 times magnification, even the best diamond begins to show its flaws. You know, uh, uh, we're a lot like that. Nobody wants to, to have their life under a microscope. You know, we're more, like, we're more like the Grand Canyon. We're best viewed at a distance. You know, the closer you get, the more flaws you see. That's why the, there's so many conflicts in families, you know, where people really know each other really well. That's where the greatest conflicts come, because we see most of the flaws of everybody the closer we get. But you see, with Jesus, what Peter saw was a flawless life. And he was with him night and day for three years. He saw Jesus when he was tempted by Satan. He saw him when he was attacked by his enemies, when he was misunderstood by his family. He saw him when he was deserted by friends, when he was interrupted by the unbelieving, when he was uh, 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 lied about by false witnesses, when he, was, when he was mocked by his own people, and when he was crucified by cruel soldiers. He saw him in all of those circumstances, and in every t- time he said, Jesus is the perfect person, flawless. And then Jesus, that perfect, flawless life, he took and he offered it on the cross as a sacrifice. The perfect sacrifice for you and for me. And and verse 39, the last part of that verse says, they also put him to death by hanging him on a cross. Now, literally, in the Greek, that says a tree. It's interesting that Paul calls it, Excuse me, that Peter calls it a tree. Why did he call it a tree? I mean, it wasn't growing out of the ground. He did it because of what Jesus did on the cross and because of what Christ became on the cross. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 21, verse 22, tells us that anyone who hangs on a tree is cursed of God. And you see, Peter says when they put him to death by hanging him on that tree, Jesus, that perfect son of God, became a curse in our place. He took upon himself our curse, our judgment, our sin. And Peter says in, in verse, uh, 1 Peter 2.24, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. For by his wounds you were healed. You see, his perfect sacrifice makes it possible for believers not only to be free from the, the penalty of sin, but to be free from the power and the dominion of sin so that we can live to righteousness, so that we can be healed. So at the cross, we find God's perfect sacrifice. 
But third, at the cross, we find God's resurrecting power. Even when we stand at the, at the foot of the cross, we have to look to the empty tomb. We, we should never talk about the cross without talking about the empty tomb. Because it is the resurrection that gives the cross its power. Verse 40 says, God raised him up on the third day and granted that he become visible. Do you see the contrast here? Wicked men put him to death by hanging him on a tree. But God raised him up on the third day. See, when God raised Jesus up from the dead, what he was doing was he was verifying who Jesus really was and what he accomplished and what he did. He was verifying that he's really the son of God, that he really is this perfect sacrifice, and that he is the son of God. And and it tells us that God granted him to become visible. Verse 41, not to all people but to witnesses who were chosen beforehand by God, this, that is, to us who ate and drank with him after he arose from the dead. Now notice this is the second time that Peter uses the term witnesses. Peter, you see, was not only a witness to Christ's perfect life, he was also a witness to the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And he says very specifically, he appeared to us and we ate with him and we drank with him after his crucifixion. So I saw his perfect life before his crucifixion. I saw his real life, his resurrected life after his his crucifixion. See, the cross of Jesus shows God's resurrecting power. Now, I mean, how far is the cross from the tomb. You know, when I, when I visited Israel, I was surprised how close the cross and the empty tomb are. It, it's, it's, it's very close. The distance is no further than from here than to the school. And you walk from that place uh, of the, with a stone, old stone quarry, you walk from that place a short distance and you come into a garden and then you can walk right into the empty tomb. But then, but, but it's not only close physically, it's, it's close temporally. Uh, the, the cross and the tomb are just three days apart. Literally, you could measure it in hours. But spiritually, the cross and the empty tomb are even closer. In fact, the, the gospel says they're inextricably combined. You cannot separate them. The gospel contains the fact that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he rose again on the third day according to the scriptures. You can't separate those two. Because again, the, the, it's the resurrection that gives the, the cross all of its powers. And you know, uh, without the resurrection and the empty tomb, the cross would really be mean nothing. Without the resurrection, the cross would become a blood-stained failure. 
Without the resurrection, Jesus was either a lunatic or a liar who convinced people that he was something more than what he really is. And he was a man who died a tragic, meaningless death. But because of the resurrection, God has shown that Jesus is who he says he is. He is the sovereign, sinless, saving son of God. And so Romans chapter 1 and verse 4 says that he was declared the son of God with power by resurrection from the dead. He is alive. The cross shows us God's resurrecting power. But fourthly, the the cross shows us God's full forgiveness. Now Peter and the other apostles have, have been witnesses to the life and to the death and to the resurrection of Jesus. And Peter says in verse 42... And he ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly testify that this is the one who has been appointed by God as judge of the living and the dead. The word testify is very similar to the word witness in the New Testament, only it's a much stronger word. And the translators of the New American Standard have added the word solemnly to show the intensity of that word. It's solemnly testify. And you see, um, we have been given a command to urgently tell people this truth. Peter could testify about the life, the flawless life of Jesus before the crucifixion. He could testify about the reality of his resurrection. But when it comes to this, Peter says, I have been told to solemnly testify. What? To what? That Jesus is the judge of the living and the dead. You see, the apostles are telling us that we have an appointment with Jesus. You have an appointment with Jesus. You say, I don't want to have an appointment with Jesus. Well, you have one. Because everyone will stand before Jesus because he is going to judge the living and the dead. But let me tell you, whether you fall into the category of the living or the fall into the category of the dead is eternally significant. If you have trusted Jesus Christ, if you have repented of your sin and come to faith in Jesus Christ, then you see, you are, you are the living. You, because you have eternal life. And, and, and Paul says this to the living or to believers in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 10, talking about this judgment. He says, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So that each one may be recompensed for his deeds in the body according to what he has done, whether good or bad. Now, that good and bad there at the end is not moral good or moral bad. It's talking about that which is uh, valuable or that which is worthless. And, and, and the judgment, this is the judgment now of the living This is the judgment of believers. And the word appear there means to make visible. It means to reveal. And you understand our lives are going to be laid bare before God. And all of our thoughts 
and attitudes and words and deeds are going to be exposed before God. And we will give an account before him. And it's, but, but listen, it's important for you to understand that believers will not be judged in the sense of condemning. Why? Because the sin of every believer has already been judged right here on the cross. We're not to be condemned, but, but do understand that all of our life, all of what we have done is going to be judged. And he, and he likens it to taking all of our life, all of our thoughts, our, our attitudes, our words, our deeds, and throwing them into a fire. Everything that's worthless is going to be consumed. Just like, poof, it's gone. Only that which has eternal value remains. And that will be rewarded. So recompense is good or bad. You see, when it goes into the fire, that's the determining factor. If it has value, it remains and it will be rewarded. If it does not remain, there is no reward. See, at the Second Corinthians 5.21, at the cross God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. At the cross, God redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. And that's why Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. Aren't those beautiful words? And do you know why? Because of the cross. But in that day, there's going to be a full, the full truth about your life will be revealed. All hypocrisy and pretense is going to be stripped away. And all temporal matters that have no eternal significance are going to vanish. And only what has eternal value will remain. And you will discover the verdict on your life. For some people, God is going to say, well done. Good and faithful servant. Enter into my kingdom. There's going to be some wonderful words. And there's going to be some discouraging words, some difficult words for people to hear. But if you've rejected Jesus Christ to live your own life, then you see you fall into the category of the dead because you are living in your trespasses. You're dead, actually, in your trespasses and your sins. You too will stand before Christ, but not at the judgment seat of Christ. You will stand with unbelievers at the great white throne judgment. And we read about that in Revelation chapter 20, beginning in verse 11. And here's what John says there. He says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and no place was found for them. This is a terrifying moment, men and women, boys and girls. Verse 12, and I saw the dead, there's that word, see, the great and the small standing before the throne and books were opened and another book was opened, which is the book of life and the dead were judged, there's that word again, the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds. 
And the sea gave up the dead which were in it. And, the de- and death and Hades gave up the dead which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in it, excuse me, in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. This is the judgment of the dead. This is the judgment of the unrepentant. And you understand what he's saying. They're judged according to their deeds and then they are thrown into the lake of fire where they receive the, 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 carried, the sentence is carried out and they're judged accordingly forever and ever. And you see, this is why Peter is testifying solemnly. Solemnly. We, do, we, we just fail to understand in the course of living our lives every day that there comes this day when we will all stand before God, living and the dead, and we will give an account. But you see, listen, this doesn't have to be your fate. Because look what he says in verse 43. Of him all the prophets bear witness that through his name everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. That is God's promise. Everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins. Everyone, that includes you. If you believe, you will receive the forgiveness of your sins. To believe in him means that you trust in his death, that it was sufficient to pay the penalty for your sins, that you trust in his resurrection, that it is sufficient for your eternal life. It means you trust in him. And everyone sins, everyone needs forgiveness, and everyone needs to be saved, and that is why everyone needs to come to the cross. You know, Peter brought... Cornelius to the cross. You know what Cornelius found? He found God's arms open wide. He found a perfect, flawless sacrifice for his sin. He found God's resurrecting power. And he found God's full forgiveness. But he found one other thing that One other wonderful gift that always comes with trusting Jesus, he found God's enabling power. You see, in verse 44, he says, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who were listening to the message. And all the circumcised believers, that is the Jews, who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. You see, God is not a God who shows partiality. Everyone who believes in Jesus Christ receives the Holy Spirit. Think about that. The Holy Spirit, he's the one who gives us the new birth. He's the one who transforms our life from the inside out. He's the one who puts his seal on us and and, and secures us for all eternity. He's the one who teaches us. He's the one who enables us to live a righteous life. He's the one who enables us to pray the way that we should. He's the one who gives us power to live this new life that Christ gives us. And after believing 
on Jesus and receiving the Holy Spirit, Cornelius and these other Gentiles gathered together there were baptized. You know what? That's what, all, that's what new believers, that's what people who trust Jesus always do. That's the first act of obedience, be baptized. Peter brought Cornelius to the cross. Have you been to the cross? Who do you need to bring to the cross? Can I ask you to take your little orange sheet out? Well, take that out of your, your, well, let me ask everybody, would you, would you help? Even if you don't want to do anything, would you just pull out your sheet so that you won't be a hindrance to the person beside of you? You get your little orange sheet there. I love that song we sang this morning, you know, about the cross. Because we sang, you know, at the cross, I surrendered my life. Why? Because I owe everything to you. I owe everything to you. That's why we come to the cross, because he's everything for us. And here's, here's the question I want to ask you. Who do you know that needs to come to the cross? Who, who does God put on your mind? It's not Cornelius, but who does, who does God put on your mind? Who are you concerned about? And the question as a follow-up is, what are you willing to do about that? What are you willing to do to bring them to the cross? I would hope that many of you could put, I will, I will pray for that person. Put their name in there. You may have several names you want to put in there. I will pray for them. Friends, prayer matters. But maybe you say, you know, I will invite them to church. I will invite them. I want them to hear a message of the cross, just like Peter was invited to come to Cornelius because it was the cross, hearing that message that made the difference in his life. See, people need to hear the gospel. That's why Paul says, how are people going to hear without a preacher? How do people get saved without hearing? And how do they get here without a preacher? Is there somebody you would invite to church? Listen, are you inviting people to church regularly? I mean, are you ashamed of your church? Are you ashamed of what happens here? If you are, you should find another church, really, honestly. Are you inviting people to come and hear the gospel? Inviting them into your life, into your circle of friends, and into your activities? Invite them. You say, I, I'll attempt to share with them what the cross means to me. You know, this Easter time is a wonderful time to talk about what God has done in your life. Have you given your testimony recently? Have you told about what Jesus did in your life? Maybe you say, I'll just, I'll attempt to tell them about the cross. That means you, I, I will present the gospel to them. I'll tell them what God says, what the Bible says. Maybe you say, I'll, I'll attempt. Now notice, I'm not, it's, this is not an absolute promise, but I'm going to make that attempt. And let me ask you another question. If those things don't stir your heart, what do you need to bring to the cross? What needs to die in your life? What needs to be crucified in your life? Friends, it could be all kinds of things. It could be your use of prescription drugs. It could be alcohol. It could be pornography. 
It could be fornication. It could be anger, unforgiveness, a whole host of things. But I'm pretty sure that the Holy Spirit will bring it to your mind, whatever it is. You need to bring it, and you need to bring it to the cross and say, God, you need to kill this in my life. I need to die to this. Maybe it's just indifference. Maybe you've lost your first love for God. Maybe he's not a passion for you anymore. Maybe you need to bring that to the cross. And here's the question. Are are you willing to come to the cross? There's some here today that you might say, I want to trust Christ as my personal Savior. I I, want to give my life over to him as best as I know. I want to, some of you need to say, I, I want to be baptized. I mean, I've trusted Christ, but I need to publicly declare my faith in him. I need to follow through on that and be obedient to the Lord. Some of you say, I need to, to join this local church and serve Christ here in this place. Some of you may need to say, I need to make Sunday worship a priority in my life. It's not become a priority. It's, I've been so sporadic and it's just not a priority and I want to make God the priority in my life. There are other things, I, some just suggestions. Maybe you want to give your, uh, your, of your income to the Lord. Or you say, I will spend so many minutes each week in the prayer room. We've got a new prayer room that's going to be opened up right here, over here outside this door. And we're going to be inviting people to come and take time to pray. And you can pray for the needs of the church and many other needs as well. Maybe you'd like to be a part of that. What do you need to bring to the cross? I hope you'll take this orange little card and I hope you'll, you'll fill it out. And I'm going to ask you to do something today. I'm going to pray in just a moment and then we're going to have some music. And while that music is playing, you can come like others have the, earlier this morning. You can come and just take one of these nails and a hammer and you can put it there on the cross. And you can see they're all facing this way. Your name is not on there. Nobody knows who it is. Just you and God. And you bring this and you put and you give it to him and you say, Lord, I'm going to follow through on this. I'm bringing it to the cross. I'm inviting you today to come to the cross and find that God is everything you need. Everything you need. Father, we thank you 